Welcome to episode 3 of Stray Bullets. So initially the idea I had for this episode was of a brief account of a regular event that I was witness to, especially during the 1980s. Uh, this was just going to form a brief instalment between episode 2 of Stray Bullets, which was A Tale of Two Cities, part 1, and episode 4, which should be A Tale of Two Cities, part 2. That's still a work in progress. But 9A4 pages later, this episode seems to have become a short story in a sense. Uh, as it grew into a narrative form, uh, that's really how it evolved and developed. I have three characters who are basically narrators. There's a police officer, um, like myself, a member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, and two civilians, one male, one female. Um, I hope they are self-evident. Um, now, I've not experimented with this style before, so please let me know what you think. Um, as ever, you can reach me through Twitter. That's at Red Bricked Slums. Uh, I, I guess to coin a phrase, this narrative is based on true events and the characters are based on real people. Um, and of course, what follows is, as I said, something which I witnessed several times uh, during my career as a, an officer in the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Okay, thanks. Turn the steering wheel sharply left. Guide Nicotina soft white mist down the Springfield Road under the damp orange hoods of the streetlights and through the junction with the Falls Road then onto the Grosvenor Road. There's a row of parked cars on my right. Same on my left. I notice a space just in front of a red car on my left. I motion a curtain into the space next to the railings of Dunville Park. Turn the ignition off, sit for a moment, let the evening shadows dissolve the last smears of light from the curtain's windows. I sit for a moment, listen to the quiet metronome of the engine's cooling ticks, metal lullabies to itself. I step out onto the Grosvenor Road Traffic flows past, a flood of red lights and stained white lights. Tires hissing over the wet asphalt. I close the Cortina's door, close through the sparkle of a gentle rain. It's early November, 1987. My father is dying. He's in the intensive care unit of the hospital. He doesn't know he's dying. He doesn't know anything. He's not opened his eyes for weeks now. He's asleep. That's how he's been. A tumour in his head has put him to sleep. I dash across the road to the hospital, letting the rain bathe my face. My father lies under threads of tubes, amongst the shelter of electronic beeps and steel breaths. His night is everlasting. The rest of the family will be here anyway. I know this was the quickest I could get here on short notice. Short notice. I've known about this hour, these common minutes, seconds for days now. I can picture them, my mother, both my brothers standing over him, waiting. Maybe life is just waiting, waiting for the switching off of her own life supports. My father's wait is over. It's like an execution, I think. But I cast the thought off. It's a natural process. It's a machine's handing control back to nature to the body, 
my father's body. Emotion clutches at my throat. Ahead of me are the doors to intensive car. Behind me, the memories of my father gather. I shall leave for these and nothing else. It's going to go down Devis Street, shouts the observer from the Land Rover's front passenger seat. I'm sat in the back, M1 rifle across my lap, eyes fixed out the small armoured window in the rear door. Same old, same old, I'm thinking. I glance at my watch, just going half nine, Friday night, locals up for a bit of sport. Horse in a stolen car around the lower falls, with us, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, trying to keep up with her tail in a lumbering armoured Land Rover. No chance, but these wee skitters want the buzz off us, so they get us to chase them. Gradually, they ease off the accelerator a bit, just to let us close a gap behind them, or maybe they'll pull a few donuts just down the road from us, just to put on a bit of a show, and just till we can gain a bit on them. The metal catches of the Land Rover's window slots rattle furiously. The air vents cough out a dry, acrid odour. I have to tense my legs and push back to stay on the narrow rear seat as the Land Rover bumps and rocks its way down Devis Street, the driver doing his best to keep this unwieldy metal box on course. I crane my neck to see out the windscreen. We're still behind that white cortina. It's been giving our cruiser run around for the best part of an hour now. A plume of grey smoke is churning back to us from its underside. I can see the heads of the cortina's rear passengers. Looks to be about six or seven squashed into the back seat. And I'm thinking that Cortina collides with something and we may be getting paperwork out for the coroner. But no, I watch it cut a left at the bottom of Divis Street and onto Cullen Tree. The observer saying that it's going into the flats like this doesn't happen every other night. Besides, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. So we watch the Cortina's trail of smoke funnel through one of the rectangular openings onto the Cullen Tree block and into the dark womb of Divis to be unborn. And so the driver reverses our truck back the relatively safe location where we can still see should the cortina emerge again and the whole shambles is replayed. Our military escorts join us in their vehicles. There's a dull clap of metal as they debuss their vehicles to find hard cover. After about five minutes we've seen nothing move except the wind scudding clouds across the dark sky. The observer begins telling Control that the Cortina's not reappeared and is probably being stripped or on fire. Control cuts the observer off mid-speech, tells him the Cortina's owner is making their way to Grosvenor Road, RUC station, and that Control has it on good authority that the Cortina's been abandoned just to the rear of the Cullen Tree block. So we get the order to go back to Grosvenor Road and pick up the owner. Are all police stations as drab as this? I wonder to myself as I sit listening to the fellow at the inquiry office window. He's asking the policewoman if his Ford Cortina is alright for the seventh time. I'm cold. Trust me to wear my thinnest dress on the night my bloody car gets stolen. Wee bastards. But I know their ma's. But I cut their ma's hers. Wish this jacket was warmer too. Doesn't keep my arms warm. I can feel the goose pimples underneath it. Sure, <clears throat> I have to listen to the stolen cars race each other up the white rock road, 
nearly every night, sometimes along Britain's Parade, past my house. Wish he'd shut up about his bloody Cortina. My wee metro's just as good. <coughs> Typical. The one time we have a girl's night out and I drive my fucking car gets nicked. Bet the bastards hooked it out of the car parking away up the White Rock. Sure, maybe they'll leave it outside my house when they finish rallying it around. I'll just close my eyes. Can a strip light be so white? It's still floating in the dark behind my eyelids. At least the girls came with me to report the car stolen. Had a walk from to here from Robinson's bar. Well, I say walk. Rachel and Maeve staggered on broken heels. <laughs> I phoned Dale's number while I was here. Why? There was no answer anyway. Sure, he told me this morning he'd be having a quiet night and watching the telly. But I know he's out in some bar in town looking to hook up with some girl. Well, at least I know he wasn't in Robinson's. Sure, isn't that why I was in there in the first place to tell myself? It wasn't. I just suggested going there because it's a good atmosphere. But I know it's because I thought, no, I wanted Dale to be there. Maybe if I caught him trying to cheat on me, I could have talked to him. Show him, just show him how much I love. They take your car too, says the fella to me as he plants himself down next to me. I notice tears shining in the corner of his eyes. Why is up, I'm thinking. But I tell him not to get so upset. It's only a car. And yeah, they took mine too. Only a car. I scold myself. That wee metro's the first real thing I have that I own. Bought with my own wages. Have to try and be positive. Cops said the bastards left it in Davis. Other people have got their cars back from there, I know that. I just want to go home, the fella talks over my thoughts. Needing my car to get home. Aye, I say to him, wishing he'd shut up. I can hear his voice waver. I notice his chin tremble. I tut loudly. I can do without this. Wise up. I finally tell him, cursing him under my breath. Him and that two-timing bastard deal. Out of the blue, he says his dad died about an hour ago. Why aren't you there? I mean, with your family. I was. You shouldn't be sat here worried about a friggin' car. I was with him. What? And you just what? Left him to come here. They switched off his machine. I was with him in the Royal when they switched off his machine. I hugged myself to keep warm. My mind processing his words as he talks. I left when the machines keeping him alive became silent. My family are assholes anyway. I just wanted to get away, go home, be alone. Away from them all. I got outside and my car's gone. A man tells me they're always stealing cars from here. Looks like mine's been stolen too. I went up to the police station on the Springfield Road and had to sit there till they tell me my car's been left in Devil's Flats. So they brought me down here. Says to me the police here will take me out to get it back. Sorry, I tell him. Sorry about your dad. He gets tearful. I just want to go home too. The policewoman slides the wee window open. 
We're expressing cheerful, with voice raised. Send us so there's a Land Rover on its way back to take us out to get our cars. Just as she's telling us this, the big door I came in opens. A cop walks in, looks at me and this fella, asks us if we're ready. I say nothing, just nod. The fella wipes his eyes. We both get up and follow the cop back out into the night. We'll be heading back out again any minute. I shout over to the commander of one of the military escort vehicles. We're just parked up behind the tall inner gates of Grosvenor Road RUC station. My breath mists up into the sharp stars. Only a few clumps of cloud move across the blue-black sky. I hear the low murmur of voices, then glimpse the observer of my vehicle walk through the gap between the two inner sangers. He's followed by a woman and a man. The observer is trying to be upbeat, telling them both that their cars look okay. I'm thinking they're a couple, but there's no one else coming through the gap. I hold the Land Rover's rear door open as the man and the woman clamber in. You's okay to go and get your cars, asks the observer as we turn onto Cullen Tree Road. The glare from the sodium lights hazing across the windscreen as Divis flat shoulders itself into our view. The woman is sat opposite behind the observer. The man is sat to my right. The woman's expression is unreadable but familiar. It's one I've seen so many times before on folk who for whatever reason find themselves removed from their worlds where they had some semblance of control and in the hours where they found themselves confronted by loss or grief amongst the shudder of steel and the language of shadows. The man is talking about being in the, the Royal Miss Cartina stolen from the Grosvenor Road. Cars are always going from that part of the Grosvenor Road, I tell him, up on the falls, just outside Children's Too. He says his dad's life support machine was switched off tonight. That's why he was there. I don't know what to say. The manager's sorry, but it just dissolves into the stale air of the Land Rover. The woman looks over the observer's shoulder at Devis Flats. She doesn't speak. The late evening webs itself throughout the Land Rover. I know I won't meet these two civilians again. We'll never really know them. But their masked anguish washes over me. The foreignness of this moment to them. The anticipation of what happens next. Their humanity makes me consider how my own ebbs away amongst the bitterness and the hatred. How my blood would just be brushed into the gutter. It wouldn't douse any of the fires of contempt that we exist. Or, well try to exist within. Behind us I gaze at the dull outline of our military escort vehicle. Just going to sit on the flat so as you can see the cars, says our observer. I open one of the rear doors slightly and gesture to the army land rover not to follow but to wait as we enter one of the dark square mouths under the Cullen tree block and there we sit as a greater dark consumes the land rover. In front of us, on barren ground, sits a white Cortina and a red Metro. The Cortina's tyres are flat on the driver's side. Rising up around the cars are the other flats, almost like a Roman Colosseum, I'm thinking. Some lights glow from the windows in the flats. The observer has switched on her front spotlight, angling it towards the cars. Its light powders over them. 
A small fire is burning itself out behind the cars. Once the spotlight is turned off, they glimmer weakly from the frail light thrown down from the flats. I can't help thinking that I've seen this scene so many times before. There's a subtle cruelty to it. One ritualised by the cat and mouse of police and stolen car and the eventual stillness soaking into the abandoned vehicles as we bring their owners to look upon them. I know the next part of the game. I'm sure my colleagues do too. Even as the observers reassuring the man and the woman that he'll give them a screwdriver each and that usually if they can turn that in the ignition barrel which will have been torn out the car has a good chance of starting. I hope he's right. I hope they make it that far this time. The woman tries to smile. The man is asking how often this happens. Every night we tell him. Loads of cars stolen. Most returning home after a few hours of being run ragged. Brought here to die. I'm thinking. Machines being switched off forever. Control comes onto the air. Says a recovery vehicle is on its way in case we need it. Can they get our cars instead? Asks the woman. They could, said the observer, but you would have to pay them for it. We paused as words punctuated by the hollow pop of a bottle shattering on the ground in front of the metro. I noticed the man grip his knees. The woman went to speak, but then there was another pop of a bottle breaking, then another, then silence. I studied both cars, lifeless, glazed by the colours of night and the shifting glare of the stars. The cortina jerked as a breeze block smashed onto its bonnet. You will have to come with me, the man said, throwing an accusing look at me. Then something that looked like a car's engine block landed just beyond our bonnet. The observer shifting in his seat, saying, I'll get on to control, his voice fading as a cluster of petrol bombs struck the cars, flames flowing over their curves, down onto the ground. Black smoke whipping up into the air and then a hail of bricks and no doubt whatever was at hand followed ricocheting with clangs and crunches off the cars teeth of rubble and fire consuming them reducing them into bones of blackened metal I could hear the woman's sobs whatever her car had meant to her must have wounded her seeing this having to be brought out to witness its death like some kind of sacrifice the emptiness. The man just kept repeating, just want home, under his breath. I never understood this ceremony, bringing vehicle owners out to watch their possessions be destroyed. Oh, I understood as police, there was no way we could recover their vehicles without inviting the prospect of a shoot, or more likely the vehicles being booby trapped themselves. But to bring the owners out to this arena, so soon after their cars had been abandoned, it, was just, it just seemed to pile on the misery. I guess this was just another legacy of the paramilitaries having encouraged the theft of cars in the early days of the conflict. No doubt just to use them as roadblocks or even shoots, a legacy of subversive skills passed on through youth offending centres and prisons. Criminal contamination think is a fancy phrase for it. Even so, these stolen vehicles often became indiscriminate weapons, taking the lives of innocents. 
or even being fired upon by police or military, thus causing more misery and loss of one or more of the stolen vehicle's occupants was killed. At least your insurance will pay out, now we'd say often, as if the owners should be grateful that we facilitated them wit witnessing their car's destruction, and yet it was always in some way evident. Or not traumatising for the civilian, that's how it seemed to me anyway. Not, of course, in the same degree as, say, a person injured by a bullet or a bomb, but just to be encased in metal and in the company of uniforms and guns, then usually conveyed to some unfamiliar place at night. <coughs> but this was just a minuscule element of the troubles which had leaked from the cauldron of animosity and division, plaguing our community. Well, thank you very much for listening. So this concludes episode three of my podcast, Stray Bullets. I hope to return soon with episode four. Um, and as I sort of said at the start, if you think this format is better, um, certainly let me know uh, because I've enjoyed preparing it. Um, I've enjoyed the whole process and uh, writing's what I do enjoy. It's therapeutic for me. I could even throw in some poems, um, which I also write. Um, and it's time as well, I guess, I got back to completing uh, novel number two. Okay, uh, thanks very much and Happy New Year.